listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. My guest today probably needs no introduction, but I'll try one anyway. He's a two-time Oscar-winning legend of the screen who has been a part of the very fabric of our industry since his breakout role in Mike Nichols' The Graduate. His work in films like Midnight Cowboy, All the President's Men, Tootsie, Rain Man, and Wag the Dog, just to name a handful, has set the bar decade after decade, and his performance in Noah Baumbach's latest, The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, in my opinion, ranks among his very best performances. His name is Dustin Hoffman, and he's sitting right here. Thanks for coming on the show, sir. Thanks for having me. And uh, I think I just got my first review. <laughs> Thank you for it. You got it. Yeah, no, it's 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 an incredible performance. I love mm-hmm. this movie. I love Noah's work is so interesting yes. to me. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into that shortly. But uh, before that, I'd like to reach back a little bit. Yes. Kind of work our way there. I mentioned the Graduate, fifty years old this year. Yes. Which is stunning. That, what, any thoughts on a milestone like that? Well, it is stunning because I'm only 47. <laughs> Wait for that. <laughs> uh, it, it, yes, time flies. Uh, but it's it was 1967, and uh, I think we it was released the end of the year, and uh, no one was expecting much out of it. And it, as I, if my memory's correct, it was a slow build yeah. in terms of people going to see it. The first time I saw it, uh, they told me because I we, we weren't Mike didn't allow any of us to see brushes. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the first time I saw it, they had, I was in New York on unemployment, and they said they were going to have a uh, a sneak of it on Eighty Sixth Street, and I went to see it, and I couldn't tell whether the audience was liking it or not. It was a full audience. I think they were coming for a movie they knew they were going to see. And by the time we got to the church, something happened to the audience. And the next thing I know is they were all standing up <laughs> and cheering. And I thought, oh, my God. you know. And I, I remember, uh, it's probably too long an answer for no, me. No, no. But this, this is the kind of stuff you recall, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I waited for everyone to leave. Uh, I suddenly was very nervous about being recognized. I mean, this was also new. Mm-hmm. I was the waiter on most of these people's tables here <laughs> in the last year. Uh, and after everyone, just about everyone was leaving, I, I was on the balcony and I started to walk down the stairs. And there was a woman who was walking with a limp because she, she had a cane. And she asked me if I was me, and I said yes. And she pointed the cane at me, and she says, life will never be the same for you. (laughs) And I found out her name was, she was famous, Rady Harris. She was a columnist. Oh, yes. Anyway. That's awesome. Well, she knew. She was right, right? I guess. <laughs> uh, the movie was such an innovation in so many ways, too. I mean, certainly acting and in, in, in the way it was constructed, though, as well, like the editing. You just met Armando, our sound guy, and uh, he said he studied that film in, in school, the, the construction of it, the editing of it. It's, it's just such an innovation, and I think it uh, certainly made an impact on tons of filmmakers over the years. I remember... Uh meeting or seeing Sam Osteen who was this brilliant editor and I said he w- <coughs> they were 
had just started cutting it and I bumped into him somewhere and I said Sam how's it going how's the film and he said I think it's good he said I just hope uh, you know I'm not cutting it too fast because Mike wants it cut so fast <laughs> he, he, you know he, he doesn't want things to land and that was his fear Hmm. Uh, but as far as the, constru- the construct of the film, Mike was about as uh, important and respected as any director could be today. And from stage work that he had done and also Virginia Woolf. And he got anything he asked uh, for. And this was a, now that I've been doing this for a while, uh, you know, under normal normal circumstances, fifty well not a, an indie but regular studio film, fifty odd days. Uh, it wasn't difficult. It was actors and four walls and a few things outside, uh, and it was a hundred days. Hmm. And he also uh, was able to hire crew, a major uh, a principal crew, sound men, uh, cinematographers. Uh, Cinematographer uh, and a uh, few people like that, because we were in a rehearsal room, which never happened on films, which happened during plays. Mm-hmm. And we rehearsed this like it was a play. And before we started shooting, uh, we could have gone on stage because we, it was all memorized yeah. the way he was working. And he was constantly, you know, about the second or third week, he was constantly working on the set with, uh, uh, as I said, Sam Osteen, the editor, and Bob Surtees, the cinematographer. So what you respect about the film wasn't accidental. Yeah. It's never done. Right. Studios say, no, 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 we're not going to hire a crew if they're not actually shooting. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to pay them. And yeah. there's something to be said for paying them before they start shooting. Sounds like that man had a vision. Yes. <laughs> Uh, may you rest in peace. That was yes. a great loss. Uh, at, at that time, guys like you and, and Duvall and uh, I guess like Dennis Hopper, there was a huge evolution in what screen acting could be. You know, the inspiration of Brando and James Dean and, you know, the method kind of taking control. And there just hasn't been a shift like that since. And I'm just curious, like, just your scholarly thoughts on, you know, the philosophy behind what you do. Do you think there might be any kind of a evolution again in terms of screen acting like that? Well, I remember hearing this uh, throughout the years. I mean, I my roommate was Bob Duval, and a friend of both of ours had introduced us and that was Gene Hackman and we were unemployed actors for about 10 years when we were hanging out together and uh, if we could have just gotten steady employment off Broadway we would have been very thankful and very happy to have that and I think that well I, I remember that our mutual hero was Brando I mean you could say that for all the actors in that generation which you could call, I guess, uh, 60s, uh, he seemed to tilt the axis on what was acting. But there was very good acting before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you can see it in the films uh, of the 40s, 50s, even 30s. Uh, You know, they just didn't have a name for it, but there was a lot of naturalism and... uh, 
and you know very spontaneous uh, work being done it was different i think at what what we hear is that stuff was done on the studio lot and these stars would sometimes go across to another sound stage and uh, you know do two or three at once and they really they they pumped them out uh so i don't think that we created anything new uh as far as the method is concerned i've never met uh two people who would uh determine or would who would give a uh you know an explanation of what it means right uh i studied with strasburg mm -hmm. uh duval studied with sandy meisner and other people studied with the greats stella adler bobby lewis i don't think that's been replaced mm -hmm. and they were giants if, if you if take it and just say I'm in the shower. <laughs> no. um, My phone was vibrating, everyone, in case you didn't hear that. And uh, we just, you know, it was a, it was, it was. So a you, mean, you mean that hasn't been replaced in terms of like that kind of a structure, that kind of uh, those yeah. people? Yeah. I think what you hear now, people say, is uh, I teach acting, and then someone will will tell me and then I'll say oh who what's the person's name and I'll say the name and oh, they'll say the name and I won't remember and then they'll say he studied with Strasburg yeah, right. everything <laughs> you know, comes back it's but you're getting the people yeah. who were students not, yeah. not the new people themselves uh, I the other part of your question is kind of fascinating because uh, you know when there was stage and that before film, uh, you, you, your job was to be real in the last row of the balcony mm -hmm. as well as the first row seats. That was a part of the craft then. You had to reach them, uh, and it was an artifice to it, and yet it, you know, it needed a, a reality. Uh, and when film came along, I think it, it put... It, it put um, what's the word? Um, it forced more of an intimacy. Well, Is it that put what you're a. Uh, what's the word? It put a. Can I see my hand movements? <laughs> uh, oh, uh, when film came along, it put a demand on 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 film. Uh, I mean, on plays that film didn't need. Uh, if you do a close up. Uh, on film and you show the face the actor really doesn't have to do anything right to convey different things that an audience will fill in they always say the audience is the third writer and uh you know one person will see this another will see this and uh i think buster keaton said uh in an interview, they asked him to define film, and he said, it's one person saying I love you to the other person, except they don't say the words. Mm. And I thought, I thought that was accurate. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the advance, if you want to call it that, since then has been put on film, and it's virtual quote-unquote reality mm -hmm. or it's the news mm -hmm. uh it's it's offensive to me when they uh they even did it here on because uh, we're recording this during this uh, horrible uh, uh flood in uh, you know texas and louisiana and god knows where else but it's a reminder to me that y you know you they people get interviewed 
when they've just suffered a horrible loss. Mm -hmm. And the interviewer saying, what did it feel like to lose your sons? And that could have been yesterday. And I always said, Jesus. And there's a demand that they show us, the audience, you know, that sequence of emotions or whatever, Mm -hmm. or that emotion. It's tough to, you know, compete with that. Yeah. Uh, I don't... uh, I, it doesn't affect me, uh, however, because I just go about trying to do good work, and and I don't think good work or my definition of good work really hasn't changed. Uh, whether it's you know me or someone else, mm-hmm. you know, you're either doing something that you where you've made the right choices, or uh, you look like you're working too hard. Yeah. Uh, regarding the news, good segue, because I wanted to talk about all the president's men, which, again, I'm sure you're asked about a lot, especially lately, which is why I wanted to bring it up, because it seems like journalism is under siege uh, by this administration. And, you know, there's a film coming out later this year from Steven Spielberg, you know, the papers about the Pentagon Papers, and it'll be all about press freedom and probably very uh, relevant as a result. But, you know, what are your thoughts on the profession of journalism being so under siege now and do you think about what was happening in the 70s a lot lately well I don't think a lot about what was happening in the 70s except you know what I was feeling in the 70s which is a whole, I wish I could get a job uh, well actually it felt more like that in the 60s but I think that um, when Redford and I made all the presidents met whatever it was, 74 or something, something like that. We researched it because we had time. Bob did his research with his person. I did mine with Carl Bernstein. I also hung out at the Washington Post for a few months. And, excuse me, and as it says in the film, a wonderful performance by Jason Robards, you need two sources before anything is printed. I don't think that exists anymore. Right. There is, and there's a reason. I mean, there is such, as I understand it, there's such competition uh, that everything is in danger of being closed down or closed up. I mean, the newspapers are fighting with the uh, with the with TV, and uh, you know, CNN 24 hours is fighting with you know Fox or whatever. So they're trying to get the readership. They're trying to get the people, and I think. They do just about anything uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they say that they... I don't think any of them have a, uh, uh, you know, substantiated uh, with two different people. Uh, I... I, uh, It isn't news. I think Trump... uh, Some of the things that Trump says, like, you know, there are kernels of of truth in it. uh, How... Or how anyone would be critical... Uh, and that is that... Uh, so I guess you're, you're basically saying that the competitive environment in media has sort of led to a lowering of journalis- journalistic standards. Yes, I think that's taken place. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it's shocking. Uh, and it's not that new. Uh, I do remember... How, I know they've been talking about Princess Di recently because is it an anniversary of her death? Is it 20 years or something? Yeah, 20 years, yeah. I remember where I was. We all, you know, you remember where you were when 
9-11 happened, there are certain events, and I remember I was driving my car in, in L.A., and I had met her a few times. I weren't, I weren't, we weren't friends, but I even met her kids because they had all come to see uh, Hook in London. We sat together, and I hear that she died. And I just, I couldn't, it had a very big effect on me. And I called my wife, and I said, did, did you, and I said, is this true or whatever? Because she had such a, she was right at the moment of her youth and, and you know, uh, this gloriously, you know, beautiful woman. Uh, and she said, yes, it was true. And I remember I, I got home and I turned on the television and one after another, that day and the ensuing days, people talked about her as if she had not just died. Mm. People working in the media. Mm. And I remember saying to my wife, have we lost the whole period of mourning? Yeah. Does that not exist anymore? Yeah. You know, do we just now, you know, go right to And I see that. I've seen it right here with the floods. Yeah. You know, they go right to it. And I think because of competition. Yeah. yeah. And the hunger. I mean, there is a hunger, I guess, out there ratings wise for, for yes. you know, people. People will consume this. You know, yes. they, they, but, you know, it's it's interesting because, uh, you know, obviously I ask a question like that and uh, I'm getting at, you know, a president who wants to outsource and, and, and violate the tenets of the form. Yes. yes. Which is uh you know, despicable, and uh, but I hear what you're saying. Certainly, I mean, just in terms of where the profession has gone. But it's interesting in light of a movie like All the President's Men that that was very much about freedom of the press. And when we were making Wag the Dog, uh, which I really loved uh, working uh, uh, with Barry Levinson and uh, De Niro, uh, it was a good time, and. Uh, David Mamet had written it. And when it came out, it, the statement, if I recall, was that you can cre create a war mm -hmm. that doesn't exist and for political reasons, which is what Wag the Dog was. Well, I think Bush was in power. Bush Jr., I think. And With Wag the Dog? Wag the Dog. That would have been the Clinton years, actually. Clinton? Yeah. Really? 97. It does all start to blur together, though. I, I'm, yes. I'm with you on that. <laughs> and what happened was is that the war in Iraq, are you sure? Yeah. Hmm. I better not finish this story. Uh, now I'm now I'm <laughs> very no, curious. I remember that uh, there were, they said that there were uh, nuclear uh, arms uh, that Iraq had. Which and they had seen them, and even you know, uh, they you know the, uh, the Secretary of State mm -hmm. of Colin Powell had said I think at the UN that they exist and showed mm -hmm. photographs ostensibly, and they didn't. Yeah, but they wanted to go to war. Right, and we did. They invented a reason, and I think that's what Wag the Dog is about. What you're saying then is. Uh not so much that you got the era wrong, but uh, it was prescient. It's yes. a prescient movie. Yes. There's the line in the film. One bomb, one video of a bomb falling down a chimney or whatever it is sold that war to the American public. I mean, that's, that's yes. the line in the movie. So, yeah. I remember reading many years ago that the Vietnam War 
started because of a lie mm-hmm. from our side, and that was that we had, I think, a battleship or a destroyer mm-hmm. in the Gulf of Tonkin, mm-hmm. and it had been, and the television wasn't that sophisticated, and uh, news came back that the North Vietnamese had bombed that destroyer or whatever it was and that was the reason for the beginning of the war and that had never and that never happened mm-hmm. another movie i wanted to talk about i actually wrote a story about three years ago i think two years ago the 25th anniversary of dick tracy which uh is such a unique movie uh just in in the the aesthetic and it must have been a trip to walk onto that set and you know, I talked to Vittorio Storaro and John Caglioni about uh, the makeup and the, and the lighting and, and all of that. But uh, why don't you tell me, like, what was it like walking onto that particular set? I didn't see uh, what uh, the other people saw. Yeah, you were kind of in a closed room for yes. your scene, so but, I don't, but, but I still, even, the costumes and just the world he was yes, creating that was I so saw, fascinating. Uh, and he and God knows Warren does his uh, research and he does his prep as, pre- uh, preparation, and it was I agree with you visually stunning and Storaro was you know the man, uh, and I I I can't really answer the question because I wasn't yeah. there, but I do remember because Warren and I have been friends for a long time. I asked him how it was going when he was writing it working with the writer and he would answer and tell me you know from time to time and I said how are you going to shoot it and he said what do you mean I said well your character are you going to show him full face and he said what do you mean I said well Dick Tracy in the comic books that I looked was always in profile right and I still wish he had done that (laughs) that would have been interesting that would have been a commitment yes (laughs) Right. Uh, do you get asked about Hero very very often? I'm curious. It's, I love that movie. I used to watch it all the time because I think it would come on HBO a lot. And uh, so it would be like every other Saturday or something I'd be watching this movie in the afternoon. And I always – I just loved it. Um, and Stephen Frears is such an interesting director to me, especially in that era. He was very versatile. Like just you couldn't peg down what kind of material he would do. But just curious, any thoughts about that film that come to mind? Uh, well, I agree with you about Freer's, and uh, I think the first thing I saw of his was a beautiful laundrette. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting how different cultures uh, view uh, work differently. I don't think it was successful here. I don't even think it got very good reviews. Mm-hmm. It was hugely successful, as I understand, in France. Uh, I don't know why. Yeah, I was going to say, why do you think that is? <laughs> and I don't. I, I, I've, you know, I've never understood that. Uh, I liked it uh, because it did speak the truth. Uh, and uh, of course, I don't have any explanation of, of, you know, I thought Frears did a first-rate job. I never, I never know, what, you know, what makes a film get, you know, where, where the critics, you know, make a left turn on it rather than a, a right turn. Yeah. Uh, I like it. Yeah. You know. As do I. And then I wanted to talk also briefly about Luck, which was a short-lived HBO series. Michael Mann and David Melch is like an impressive combination. Uh, unfortunately, a short-lived show, but uh, I was watching it every week and was very intrigued by its kind of unfolding, like novelistically. But w- working with two guys like that, just tell me about that. Well, unfortunately... Uh, <clears throat> 
when I've, I've never uh, had never done a series before and I not wasn't a, a very big TV watcher I'd watch the sports and watch the news and I don't really know why I I see much more now in terms of series but uh, uh, originally I would just you know or see an old movie uh, so I didn't know really what a series was and when I had my first meeting with which was with Milch and Michael Mann. They were sitting about 10 feet apart. And I would ask questions. I said, you know, I read the script, and I said, so much of it is this in-dialogue. There's these in-expressions because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're horse betters. So it's, and, and Milch himself was writing from something he knew. Mm-hmm. I think he'd been a huge horse gambler uh, a good part of his life. And I said, I would say certain words. I said, what is this word? What does that word mean? And they would explain it. And I said, well, doesn't the audience have to know that? And they said, no. In television or in series, they learn what that means in later. So when they said things like that, I said, well, I, I, I have no argument with that. <laughs> what am I going to say? Uh, they uh, are both, you know, bright, you know, first-rate artists, but they, as happens, uh, it wasn't at that particular time a a, a good marriage. Mm -hmm. And I was told uh, by Milch uh, that in in doing television, because he had done, you know, some very impressive stuff uh, on TV, that what's great is that the writer is the, what they call the showrunner. So the writer has, I learned this on this experience has more power really than a screenwriter screenwriters are lucky if they get invited to the set twice yeah you know but a showrunner is the not only the writer but they kind of determine where the where the film goes we and we don't have the same director as we do in film we had a different director every week right so i was looking forward to this and on the first day we were at uh, santa anita and i heard there was an argument uh, between uh, Michael and uh, David, and I'm friends with both of them. I wasn't there, and uh, David uh, never came on the set after that first day. And it was too bad. Uh, I'm still confused why it got pulled. I've never been through an experience, I don't think anyone had ever been through an experience like this where they you're doing the first year and you're wondering are, are they going to okay us for the second year do mm-hmm. you think we'll get called and suddenly we hear three quarters into the first season yes we're getting so we'll have a second year and I was very excited about that because my son wonderful actor uh, Jake Hoffman who played my grandson I think in the in the film that second season was going to be devoted mm. much more to him in terms of his relationship to me and we had just done a scene which I thought went very well before we broke for lunch in the second season Mm -hmm. maybe the third time or fourth time you know the fourth show we had done in that second season and a few of us went to lunch and I get a phone call from Michael Mann and Michael says uh, words to the effect uh, they're closing us down Mm -hmm. I said what? I said HBO so you mean we're not going to have another season? He says, no. He says, they're closing us down. Mm -hmm. I said, you mean after this show? No. Now. 
we don't go back to work after lunch. That has to be weird. Not only weird, but it was so devastating for a crew who thought that they were going to be on a job for a few years, and they had come from all over with their families and everything, and suddenly they're just, you know... I, th- I seem to recall at the time there was something about a horse getting injured or dying or something, and that was why part of why they pulled the plug or something. That's what was the myth that was created. Really? So, yeah. So you're giving me the real scoop here. Well, you know, we uh, what? Who was it? Uh, I, I don't mind being very critical of them. Uh, the uh, HBO? No, the uh, the animal organization. PETA? Yes, PETA. They came down very hard, as from what I understand, on HBO. And Mm -hmm. HBO, they were very nice. The heads of it called me and said, we can't afford, I think they said, we're, you know, we're an open stock. We can't afford to have bumper stickers that say, uh, you know, we kill horses that PETA's going to do. And then uh, slowly, uh, because we were, we had shut down already, I start to learn what this whole PETA thing is about, and I look them up on the internet, and I see that uh, you know they uh, they have a budget of like uh, I can't remember uh, if it was nine million a, a, a year, and uh, less than a million of it goes to animals, hmm. uh, and uh, the truth of this horses business that I did find out because I'd never seen horses having been, or any animals, having been taken care of more. Mm-hmm. They would race them for a sh- very short distance for the shot. Then they'd rest them and take them out, s- replace it with another horse of the same look, or just wait. I mean, they they were treated, you know, really superbly. Mm-hmm. I heard that one of our horses died as it was being led back to the barn because another horse had thrown a shoe and it hit this horse and killed him. I also heard that there was at least two horses that were killed that weren't even in our show at Santa Anita Track. I looked into this just a little bit, and I found out these horses, I'll probably get letters or whatever you get, uh, you know, are bred to race, and they're, they're fragile, yeah. You know, they have very thin legs, and it's not unusual uh, for, uh, I guess, uh, you know, places, you know, where, where, where horses race in, in the United States. You know, you can count, you know, whatever it is, 10 a year die. Uh, and uh, they're not, you know, a horse isn't built to race like that, and it's not, you know, I guess that unusual for a horse to break its leg or something when it's actually racing. Right. And then I heard there was a TV show uh, being shot overseas, a series that would lose about, you know, 10 horses a year. But we they, they didn't have horse racing, but right. horses figured to be prominent in the, in the series. And we just didn't hear about that. Wow. Well, there was a lot more to that story than I thought, huh? There's even more. <laughs> <laughs> We're only a 30-minute show. Right. Well, that's fascinating. Well, like I, I loved that show, and I was looking forward to more. So hopefully you and Michael and maybe David can work on something else again. Let's talk about the new movie, though. The Meyerowitz Stories. New and selected Noah Baumbach. You play a sort of a self-absorbed artist. 
patriarch type, I guess is the best way to put it, which is kind of a familiar character in Noah's repertoire. He revisits those ideas and characters a lot. But uh, you make this one very much your own, and it's a great performance. Uh, I was curious watching it, though, uh, with someone like this. Like, do you model it on someone? Is there somebody in real life that you kind of were thinking of? How do you start to build this character? Well, no one I had never met before. Uh, and then when I heard that he wanted me, uh, of course, I was flattered. And I read it, and I met him and liked him. Uh, sorry, and agreed to do it. And he was in Los Angeles, where I live with my family. And I have an office. And he would come over to the office, and we would just sit and talk about uh, the character. And this, you know, and the screenplay, but a lot about the character. He mentioned his father, his own father, certain aspects. And I said, gee, that's amazing you say that, because my father had those same characteristics. And suddenly it became an ongoing and continuous conversation about each of our fathers. And from there, I guess you just use it as a, a springboard. Uh, I mean, my father was never successful and was very bitter about it uh, in his line of work. And this character uh, that I played, that Noah wrote, had a was kind of a you know it was kind of a it was an interesting character to try to get a hold of because this off camera or the past uh, life of this uh, guy he had been a very successful sculptor they had a piece of his at Lincoln Center uh, they had a piece of his at the Whitney and it was very early, and this is before the film starts, and this was very early in his career, and then nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, in my profession, I've known a few people like that, you know, and I don't certainly don't want to mention them by name, but they're not just actors, they're screenwriters, they're directors, and you always say with that person, what happened? Yeah. And I guess there's different answers, but that was a study uh, about that kind of character. Mm -hmm. uh, with no with no awareness of malice, but enough uh, enough unresolved cynicism in him to really hurt his his sons. I would like to add that, and I always am afraid to say anything because it sounds like you're plugging a film, and I always put my fingers in my ears when I see other actors <laughs> doing it. Stop! You're saying what they made you say. Uh, but I think that my sons, Adam Sandler and and Ben Stiller, I think it's the best work I've I've seen them of them, and they're not playing comedians or clowns. Absolutely, they're fantastic. Adam doesn't get these kind of chances too often no, either. And no. when he does, he knocks it out of the park. I mean, just look at the Paul Thomas Anderson film. Punch I mean, Drunk Love. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just. Uh, your your company Punch Productions actually yes there you go. but it's yeah he when he gets these opportunities he he knows what he's doing yes. you know and I feel like people don't don't give him enough credit for that I yes and I've always wondered why they they are that mm -hmm. tough on him uh, I went up to him about the second week of shooting and because I've known him uh, not well I think we got to know each other more on this 
and I was saying to him, I said, Adam, I said, I don't know if I should say this to you because you don't like to talk about another actor's work in terms of what they're doing while they're doing it because uh, you don't want to make them self-conscious. I said, but I just have a hunch of what you're doing in terms of the character and whether you're doing it consciously or you don't even know you're doing it, so I'll stop there. <laughs> and he said, no, no, tell me, tell me. I said, are you sure? He says, yeah. I knew him well enough to know him, and I've only known him since he became successful. But I said to him, I think you're playing yourself in a way had you not been successful, had you been unable to get a job. I think you're playing the loser part of yourself. And I think that's very courageous. What did he say? He just smiled and said, <laughs> <laughs> probably walked away. <laughs> yeah, and Ben's done you know great work with Noah in the past as well. Yes. And, and uh, yeah, he gets especially one particular moment in this movie to really cut loose. The monologue. Yeah, but Ooh. in general, yeah, you're right. I mean... It's okay to plug the movie with, with, with those <laughs> insights, I think, because they're great performances. And it's, it's, a, it's as I say, I, I thought you were fantastic in the film, and it's right up there with some of your best work. So. Thank you, sir. Congratulations on it. The movie is called The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected. plays the New York Film Festival and will open October 13th, I believe. Yes, on Netflix and in theaters, select theaters. Uh, Dustin Hoffman. That's the show. Thanks for coming on, sir. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to ask a question yeah. that you probably know the answer to, but Let's I don't. It. What do you think new and selected means? <laughs> it sounds like one of those book things. Yes. You know, to me. So I didn't even know the sub that was on there when it played Can, actually. I, I thought know. it was just called The Meyerowitz Stories, and then right. suddenly it had this parenthetical, and I was like, oh, okay. That's typical well, Noah. That makes sense. Thanks. But go see the movie when it comes out. It's great. And thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Isn't Harold Meyerowitz's son, Matthew? Yes. Uh, Mrs. Danny, also Carl Meyerowitz's son. I didn't realize he had two sons. And a daughter. Dad, it would be okay here. It'll be nice to spend time with Dad. No, I didn't get a lot of time with him growing up. Son of a bitch! Well, once we had an easy ride, now we felt the same. Dad, what the fuck? I was on my side, now I had everything's game. Maureen is master. Really, they uh, take all of the little birds and deep fry them and just... It's very sad. There are no little birds left in Italy anymore. They've eaten them all. You are going to meet a lot of interesting new people. I didn't make it a month at college because I like drugs so much. Yes, you need to bring him down. We're Harold Meyerowitz. You're on the list for the public viewing. Right now, this is a private viewing. Hello, it's a mistake. Hello, this is bullshit. That. Yeah. She hears everything you're saying.